Hello, and welcome to Grasping Scripture. Today we're going to be looking at the first chapter of the book of Colossians. That's Paul's letter to the Colossian church. As we prepare to look at this passage or these passages and hear what God has for us there, what he is speaking to the church through Paul, let's turn our hearts to the Lord in prayer. Please join me as we pray. Heavenly Father, we turn to you in this time asking that you would give us that you would give us hearts that are sensitive to the prompting of your spirit. Father, we know that you inspired the writing of these words and that they have great power. That your spirit still moves through your word and speaks to our hearts. Lord, give us ears to hear your voice. Give us a heart that is malleable in your hands. That as we study this first chapter of Colossians, we will hear you challenging us, convicting us where we need to surrender more to you. Father, and encouraging us as this text so strongly encourages that we take our strength, our confidence in our relationship with Christ. Father, we thank you for the gift of Christ, that atoning sacrifice for our sin, that we may be made right with you, that we may be united with Christ, and that we have been given the task of carrying forward this message of good news. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So Paul's letter to the church in Colossae, it has some real similarities with some of the other letters we have looked at written by Paul to the early church, and yet it has some distinct differences. So by way of background, let me approach this by framing the environment into which Paul wrote this letter and what the situation was he was addressing. Paul, at this point, was still in Rome. He was in the first Roman imprisonment, which was, you know, um, AD 59, 60, might have gone up to 62. It's in that range, probably 60 to 62, most likely. So that's the time period in which this letter was written. Interestingly enough, Paul had never been to the Colossian church. Paul did not found the church. But what we do know about the church and its history is that a fellow by the name of Epaphras that Paul led to Christ at Ephesus during his three years there traveled some 120 miles east to Colossae and began a ministry there that became the launch of that church. Now, we don't know exactly how long that church was there, but by the time Paul's writing, probably somewhere between five to seven years of age for this congregation. And although Paul didn't see himself as the parent of that congregation, if you will, uh, spiritually the one that came in and started that congregation, he did kind of see himself as the grandfather, if you could frame it that way, of that church, because he had led to faith and discipled Epaphras, who went and led many of them to faith and discipled them. And so Paul still feels this sense of connection with the church. So 
we find a lot of what he writes to the church to be reminiscent of, say, the book of Ephesians, except that there's this removed aspect in that Paul's never been there and he's never met these people, but he still knows the truth of their situation. And you'll notice as we read through this book, book that a book, what's a book? Um, okay. This book that Paul focuses on Christ and these larger narratives of who Christ is and what that means in the lives of a believer. Because those are realities that are true for everyone. You are either lost or saved. And if you are saved, there are certain things about Christ and your relationship with him that are true, period. Now, the Colossian church, Epaphras, has come to visit Paul in prison in Rome and apparently shared with him what's going on and his concerns for the Colossian church. And it appears that some of what is going on there is there is a um, certain level of, if you will, syncretism going on. They are incorporating certain aspects of pagan beliefs or false belief systems into their Christian practice and worship and, and uh, theology, if you will. And Paul is writing not so much to focus on what they're getting wrong, but to remind them of what is right. I heard years ago the illustration, and, you know, I, I know the use of actual cash has fallen out of favor, uh, especially during COVID, but back in the day, I was told that bank tellers did not spend their time at the bank learning how to recognize all the different variations of counterfeit money that might come through. I mean, they could have examples. The Treasury Department could provide them with examples of all sorts of counterfeit money. But that's not how they train tellers to spot fakes when they come through the till. Instead, what they do is they teach them what the real thing looks like. And then when they see something that doesn't look right, they can flag it. Now, there are certain key things, especially with our modern money, that we look for as being um, off, if you will, about counterfeits. But still, the, the truth of that example kind of holds for what we're looking at in scripture and what Paul is encouraging the Colossian church with. And that is, you need to know Christ, learn the truth, learn the reality. And then when you see something that's not the truth, you can flag it. You can go, mm, no, I may not be able to tell you everything that's wrong with it, but I know the truth and that's not it. The Colossians had missed that. They knew the truth, but then the other stuff just began to become familiar, began to, to get comfortable for them. And so they started blending. The problem is when you start blending the truth with something that's not the truth, all you get is not the truth. You see, a half-truth still isn't the truth. You can't divvy it up like that. Well, that's your background as, as we lay the groundwork and begin looking at the passages. So now we're going to turn our attention to the text.
And one of the nice thing about things about the book of Colossians is that we don't have any question about who it's written to or who it's by or any of that, because Paul gives it to us right at the beginning. Verse one of chapter one, this letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and from our brother Timothy. We are writing to God's holy people in the city of Colossae who are faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. May God our Father give you grace and peace. Now, one thing Paul makes clear there is who he is writing to. It's not just the people of the city of Colossae. He is writing to the Colossian church, to the brothers and sisters in Christ. So, you know, if you were to read this as a non-Christian and go, hey, I don't agree with it, it wasn't written to you. Get over it but he's writing this to the church. May God our Father give you grace and peace. But then he goes on and he begins to explain the good news about Christ. And the way he explains it has a lot to do with some of these false beliefs that had taken root there in Colossae. You see, the Colossians had had begun to focus on the spiritual realm. And you know, who spiritual isn't, you know, isn't Christianity dealing in some extent with the spiritual realm? Aren't there angels and aren't there demons? And there's, there's all of these things going on. Paul says we battle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. you know? So isn't that true? Well, in a sense, yes, but Christ is greater than all of that. And the only one that we are supposed to focus on, the only one we're supposed to give our attention to, the only one we're supposed to worship, follow, listen to, is Jesus. And Paul makes clear in these passages why. Because they had gotten off base and they had started, uh, for lack of a better term, starting to uh, worship, if you will, or incorporate into their worship these these spiritual forces or spiritual kings or rulers or or whatnot. And you can see this in, well, in our modern world's practice of Christianity in some cultures in some areas, and that's not a slam on different cultures. It's just a statement of reality. We incorporate the things that we're comfortable with and the notions we have into our beliefs. And that's not a good thing. As followers of Christ, we need to strive to clear those things out, not incorporate them in. Uh, In America, we we tend to equate following God with affluence, with wealth, with power. And so you wind up with kind of a corrupted faith in many senses. You wind up with this, this nationalistic type faith as well. To where people will tell you, oh, I'm a Christian. You say, well, what, what makes you a Christian? Well, I'm an American. Well, that's not the same thing. You can be an American and a Christian, but you're not a Christian because you are an American. It doesn't work that way. We begin to, to build these other ideas in and, and say, oh, there's more to it. In, in some cultures, there's a, a reverence for ancestors and, and essentially a worship of ancestors that has been incorporated into the Christian faith. Well, there's a problem with that. Again, as I said 
earlier. Truth with error mixed in ceases to be truth. But the truth is still in there. Yeah, but have you ever dropped black paint into a bucket of white paint? You get gray paint. And no matter how much you try to strain out the black, you're still going to have gray. Once you start mixing it in, it's really hard to get it back to what it's supposed to be. Well, we have God's word. And we can always go back to God's word. And Paul is calling them back to the truth that we see proclaimed in God's word. So again, he's beginning to lay out this case for the good news of Christ and why Christ is supreme, why he should be worshipped, and all this other stuff doesn't even need attention. And we're going to get to that. He says it so eloquently. So here we go. In verse 3, we always pray for you, and we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all of God's people, which come from you or come from your confident hope of what God has reserved for you in heaven. So he's saying, look, we've seen this. We've heard of what's going on. We've seen this faithfulness in you as evidenced by love for all of God's people, as this confident hope in what God has reserved for you in heaven. You have had this expectation ever since you first heard the truth of the good news. So he's saying from day one, as soon as you heard the gospel, your lives changed. He goes on in six. This same good news that came to you is going out all over the world. It is bearing fruit everywhere by changing lives, just as it changed your lives from the day you first heard and understood the truth about God's wonderful grace. So he's drawing them back, reminding them of their own encounter with Christ, of the profound change in who they were, how they saw the world, how they behaved, what mattered. It all changed that day. In 7, he says, you learned about the good news from Epaphras, our beloved co-worker. He is Christ's faithful servant, and he is helping us on your behalf. He has told us about the love for others that the Holy Spirit has given you. So he's saying, look, the stuff I know about you, the stuff I'm praising you for right now, I learned that from Epaphras. He's telling us about what's going on there, about who you are and your faith in Christ. And he goes on to say, so we have not stopped praying for you since we first heard about you. We ask God to give you complete knowledge of his will and to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding. Then the way you live will always honor and please the Lord, and your lives will produce every kind of good fruit. All the while, you will grow as you learn to know God better and better. We also pray that you will be strengthened with all his glorious power, so you will have all the endurance and patience you need. 
May you be filled with joy, always thanking the Father. He has enabled you to share in the inheritance that belongs to his people who live in the light. For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. So Paul there is, he's praising God for what he has done through Christ. He is encouraging the Colossian church, reminding them of the roots of their faith, of that life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ as their Savior and their Lord. And he's praying for them that they would experience complete knowledge and spiritual wisdom and understanding these foundations that will help them to grow in faith in Christ. These things that God in his word says, just ask him for if we lack. But he goes on to also pray that they would be strengthened, that they would have endurance and patience. You see, they got to hold the course. They have to stay rooted in Christ. And that's not always going to be easy. And it's certainly not always going to be fast. It's going to require patience and endurance. And then may they be filled with joy, always thanking the Father. You see, if their focus stays on the Father, if their joyfulness is rooted in who they are in Christ, then the rest of this becomes very doable. And then he talks about them sharing in the inheritance that belongs to his people, that is God's people, who live in the light. Those are all that are in right relationship with God, those that live in the light. And then he explains why in 13, for he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. You see, these are people that were falling back into their old beliefs, were starting to be concerned about spiritual forces and powers and appeasing them or giving them due reverence or whatever, in addition to worshiping Christ. And here Paul's kind of, in a, in a subtle fashion, drawing the battle lines. There's two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of light, and there's the kingdom of darkness. And we were, because notice he didn't say you in 13. He says, for he has rescued us. We were all part of the kingdom of darkness. But God rescued us, transferred us to the kingdom of his dear son, that kingdom of light, those that live in the light. How did he do it? He purchased our freedom. Not only did he purchase our freedom, but he forgave our sins. That's what Christ has done. And he has moved us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Not by our own doings. And we don't need to pay attention to the kingdom of darkness anymore. 
that's no longer the focus of our life. Our life should be focused on Christ, our King. So he has set the stage now for them to grapple with some of the ideas that they had begun to incorporate into their life as a church. Some of the the false beliefs, some of the old beliefs that they had started allowing to creep back in. Now, the next few passages, starting in verse 15, are a beautifully written expression of the supremacy of Christ, that Christ is above all. He is Lord above all lords, king above all kings. And there's also a wonderful, uh, clear, in my mind, explanation of Christ is God. There even today, those that are, well, Jesus never claimed he was God, and Scripture doesn't teach that, you know, they were separate. That's nonsense. We see, you know, we don't see the word Trinity, but we see expressions of the concept of Trinity throughout the New Testament. And here... In these passages, Paul makes it abundantly clear that Christ is part of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God. Verse 15, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. Now, there's something we need to pay attention to here. Again, the Colossian church was becoming, um, maybe not enamored, but becoming a little too attentive to their old beliefs. The idea that there were these spiritual forces and powers that they needed to uh, pay attention to, you know, yes, there's Jesus, but there's other powerful stuff out there. And we need you know, listen to this right out of the gate. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. You may not be able to see God, but you can see Christ. You can know God because you can know Christ. The rest of the verse, he existed before anything was created. So if you're worried about all these other spiritual forces, Christ existed before them, if they are in fact real. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. Those are a couple of pretty inclusive words there, anything and all. So what's older than Christ? Nothing. What is more powerful than nothing? Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. And he existed before anything was created. Verse 16, for through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else. 
Now that's the first part of 17 is where I'm stopping. I know it's not the whole 17. We'll get there. What has Paul just said? He's saying Christ is God. And it's through Christ everything, everything that is, was created through him. And that counts the stuff we can see and the stuff in that spiritual realm we cannot see. We know there is a larger reality than what we're aware of. We know there is a spiritual realm. We know that there are powers and forces out there. We know there is a battle being waged. We know there are angels and demons because scripture tells us about these things. But we don't see it. But we know it's out there. But we don't have to worry about it. Why? Because he made the things that we can see. And the things we can't. Everything was created through him and for him. Again, another one of those all-inclusive words. Everything. There's no exceptions to that. There's no some hidden corner of creation out there that Christ didn't create. There's no hidden part of an unseen realm that... Christ doesn't have authority over. He existed in 17. He existed before anything else. And he holds all creation together. What is it that holds everything together, that keeps it all going? Christ. It's Christ. The ultimate goal of science should be understanding creation. But when we come to understand creation, this is the problem with modern science in all too many cases. It's frankly its own arrogance. You can get very detailed in trying to understand and describe what is, but all of that should lead you back to the one who is, should lead you back to Christ. Romans 1 tells us that nature declares God's glory. So when we study it, it's actually a good thing if it drives us to worship him more. It's when we make the study a God and try to ignore God. But Christ existed before anything and he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. So he's first in all of creation and he is head of the church. He is the beginning. Verse 19, for God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ and through him, God reconciled everything to himself. 
He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. Sin was paid for. Atoned for. Through him, God reconciled everything to himself. Sometimes we limit ourselves to thinking that the atoning work of Christ is all about us and our sinfulness. But we need to understand our sinfulness. When sin entered this world, it twisted creation. And it's not just us, but it's all of creation longs. Again, as Paul talks about in Romans, all of creation longs for that day when it is set right again. That day when it's all put back the way it ought to be. That day when we see the reconciliation of God in its fullness. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. Now think about what Paul has just presented to the Colossian church. If they had slipped into this false belief, and he'll address it some more later on, but into this false belief that we've we've got to give homage to these spiritual powers, you know, that we, we at least have to give attention and, and, and some sort of worship or, or acknowledgement to them, not just Christ, but Christ and. Paul has just made the case very clearly, all the power lies with Christ. All of creation is through Christ and for him. He was around before any of it. And he has reconciled everything. And not only that, his kingdom, that kingdom of light that we are now part of by his work, this all-powerful God, he's also head of the church. He's head of the church, which is his body. The message there to the Colossians is, hey, you're the church. You don't need to worry about anything else out there. Because the God of all creation, who was before everything, who created everything for himself and through himself, that God of all creation saved you. reconciled you to him, brought you out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. That supreme God did that. So how ridiculous is it to pay attention to any of that other stuff? And it's just not. It, it, it is ridiculous. It's just It makes no sense to pay attention to it. Well, Paul goes on talking about our reconciliation in Christ. He's laid the groundwork for it. He's mentioned it. Now he's going to unpack it a little bit. In verse 21, 
He says, this includes, now what's include? Well, let's go back to 20. He made peace with everything in heaven and earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. Now, this includes you who were once far away from God. And that's true for all of us. We all were once far from God. You were his enemies separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. And yet, he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence, and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. You'll notice in those couple of verses, there is nothing there about our accomplishments. There is nothing there about what we did to make all this happen. He says, look, he made everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ, or made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross, that atoning sacrifice on the cross. Well, he said, look, this includes you. You were far away from God. You were his enemies. You were separated by your evil thoughts and your actions. There is nothing there to commend us to God. And yet Paul's saying this includes you. When that described you, he made peace with everything by means of Christ's blood on the cross. Yet now, so this is, here's your reality now. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, what's that mean? What's that mean for us today? Where does that bring us now? He has brought you into his own presence, and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. I think we have a hard time with that. As believers, as followers of Christ, I think, or, or maybe I shouldn't, I shouldn't project on anybody else with that. I have a hard time with that. How's that? I know it's true, but there are days I don't live like it's true. There are days I struggle with this sense that I'm not worthy because the truth is I'm not worthy. But it's not about my worthiness. It's about him. And he says, as a result, as a result of what Christ did on the cross, he has brought, and I'm going to personalize this, he has brought me into his own presence. And I am holy and blameless as I stand before him without a single fault only way I'm able to stand holy and blameless before God without a single fault is because he declared it to be so through the work of Christ on the cross. Because me, I was his enemy. I was far away from him. I was separated from him by my evil thoughts and actions. He made the difference. He changed everything. Folks, 
Colossians 1, 21 and 22 are verses you can hang your hat on because those are the verses that our eternity hangs on. You ever want to know who you are in God? You want to know how God sees you as one of his children? Colossians 1, 22 makes it abundantly clear. You may tell yourself something different. The people around you may tell you something different. The enemy will definitely tell you something different. But the truth is, as a result of his atoning work, he has brought us into his presence, into his own presence. And you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. You have been made clean. Live in that reality. Well, it goes on in 23. But you must continue to believe this truth and stand firm in it. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. The good news has been preached all over the world, and I, Paul, have been appointed as God's servant to proclaim it. So he reminds him again, look, the good news, back where you started, he started earlier before he talked about the supremacy of Christ, about reminding them about who they were and how they changed in that encounter with Christ. Here, he's just unpacking what that change is, what it means, why it matters. And so he brings them back to this hearing the good news and that the good news is being preached all over the world. Now we'll pick up in 24. And Paul is talking here about well, some of what he has done for the church and, and how he feels towards the church. Hear what he says. He says, I am glad when I suffer for you in my body, for I am participating in the sufferings of Christ that continue for his body, the church. Now, Paul's not some sort of masochist or something. He understands more about who God is and about his love for the church. And I don't mean the building or the institution. I mean the people for the redeemed. As he begins to understand more of what it is to suffer for the redeemed. And so he says, I'm glad when I suffer for you in my body, for I am participating in the sufferings of Christ that continue for his body, the church. God has given me the responsibility of serving his church by proclaiming his entire message to you. This message was kept secret for centuries and generations past. But now it has been revealed to God's people. For God wanted them to know that the riches and glory of Christ are for you Gentiles too. And this is the secret. Christ lives in you. This gives you assurance of sharing his glory. So we tell others about Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all the wisdom God has given us. We want to present them to God perfect, that is mature, complete, perfect in their relationship to Christ. That's why I work and struggle so hard, depending on Christ's mighty power that works within me. 
to say, it's not me. It's the mighty power of Christ working in me as I carry out that calling and purpose he has given me. But it's not me. I'm doing what he wants me to do. He makes it possible. So even in Paul's own life, it's focused back on Christ. It's focused back on God. But let's go back and look here and see, he's talking about this, this secret, this, this mystery, this, there are people that latch onto that. There were early groups associated with the Christian church. They weren't in fact Christians, although they might've called themselves that, uh, there's a group called the Gnostics, which came about. John was dealing with an early version of that in many of his writings in the new Testament. But the, the Gnostics advocated that there was this secret knowledge beyond just what the gospel was. There was a secret knowledge. And when you, when you knew that secret, then you were really part of, you know, whatever. And we see people doing that today. They grasp at straws because they, they find the truth and the clarity of God's word to be too uncomfortable. So instead of taking God's word for what it says, letting it challenge their heart and their lives and turning to Christ for salvation, they try to come up with secret codes. You know, that in the original Greek, if you if you decode it properly, then this letter taken off of this line of this column of this page combined with this one over here. And it, you know, I can say anything with the alphabet that I find in scripture. If I just want to select a letter or a word here or there, boy, I could make it say anything. And they in fact do. Those types of secrets or codes found in scripture that reveal some hidden knowledge, that is all garbage. It's about the best word I can use for it. It's all garbage. Don't get tripped up, caught up, confused, dismayed. Just ignore it. Much like the Colossian church needed to ignore what they perceived as all these spiritual realities and they needed to focus on Christ. Brothers and sisters, you need to focus on Christ and his word. Don't try to, to make secrets where things have been made plain. And as we read this passage, Paul says it's been made plain. This message was kept secret for centuries and generations past, but now it has been revealed to God's people. God's people are all those that are in the kingdom of the light, all those that know Christ, saved by his redeeming work. Verse 27, for God wanted them to know the riches and glory of Christ. Wanted them to know the riches and glory of Christ are for you Gentiles too, you Gentiles also. You see, the Jews had had the message that there was a Messiah coming, that God would provide an atoning sacrifice that would be adequate, that those temporary sacrifices in the temple just pointed towards the perfect sacrifice that God would provide to reconcile his people to himself. They had just kind of narrowed the message over the years and forgotten the passages in Isaiah and elsewhere that talked about the Gentiles and the Jews being in the kingdom. And Paul's saying here, look, God wanted them to know that the riches and glory of Christ are for you Gentiles too. 
And then just to clear it up, in case there's any confusion, he goes on to say, and this is the secret. All right, this is trumpet fanfare here. Here's the secret. Christ lives in you. That's the secret. And that's the secret that was hidden. They knew there would be an atoning sacrifice. They knew God had promised to deal with this issue of sin that separated humanity from God. But they never conceived the idea that when that all played out, what would happen is Christ, the Messiah, the very person of God, would live in us. That gives us a connection to God that goes beyond anything imaginable. That's the secret, and it's been revealed. It's been made known. It is the good news of the gospel that we're told to go out and proclaim. There is no hidden message in Christianity. The whole point is, it's not hidden. We proclaim it boldly, or we should. And he says, this gives you assurance of sharing his glory. And he goes on to say, so we tell others about Christ, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all the wisdom God has given us. We want to present them to God perfect, that is complete or mature, in their relationship to Christ. That is why... I work and struggle so hard, depending on Christ's mighty power that works within me. So there in the first chapter, right out of the gate, Paul has presented the supremacy of Christ. He's presented how we were part of the kingdom of darkness and what that looked like. And that now through the work of Christ, not our own work, his work, we are now in the kingdom of light. We are in his kingdom. We have a purpose. We have this this message to declare that once was hidden, but now is made plainly known. And so if all of this is real, all of this is true, all of this reflects back on our lives as we look back and we see where we encountered Christ and it changed everything, then we know we don't have to look for anything else. We don't have to worry about different spiritual powers or anything else. The only thing we need to pay attention to is Jesus. We need to stay focused on Christ. The term that rarely gets used in church life, but it's a very accurate term, is we need to be Christocentric. We need to be focused with Christ as the center of everything. Did we get that right? The rest of it kind of falls into place. Well... I want to invite you to join me back next week as we journey further into the book of Colossians. We'll take on chapter two in our next podcast. Let me close this in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, again, we turn to you. And Father, we thank you for this gift of right relationship with you. Father, that we have this We have the incredible presence of the Spirit of Christ in our lives. And it's your doing. And because of it, you say 
that we're faultless as we stand before you. And Father, we know that we are only faultless before you because of Christ, because of his work on the cross, making peace between us by removing our sin and paying for it himself. Father, thank you. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for that gift of salvation. Thank you for declaring us yours. And thank you for giving us the purpose of living for you, seeking to please you and glorify you, and proclaiming the message of your good news that it's not just for us, but it's for everyone. And Father, thank you for your word, that we may study it, that we may know you more, that we may understand better and better who we were apart from you and who we are in you. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.